Um, so before I kind of read the text, uh, I can start with kind of short intro to, to the text. So this is, um, we're going to be looking at our Luke 17 um, and reading from verse 20 to 40, 37, sorry, 20 to 37. And, um, and kind of just start off by saying a bit of my history in relationship to the text. And this is, this is something I have wanted to preach on in a, for a very, very long time. Um, me being kind of an Old Testament guy, it's kind of strange, I know. But I think there, uh, uh, it's one of those texts from, from years ago I've, I've looked at and said, there is so much we can learn from this. I mean, obviously, the Gospel of Luke is a great gospel in many, in many respects. But this particular text is unique to Luke. And I think it helps in drawing clarity to what the kingdom of God is. And, you know, all throughout the book of Luke, there is this theme of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is coming. Um, similar threads through Matthew, but Luke is particularly strong. And when you're teaching about the kingdom of God, and I think we need to make that connection to what we call in theology, ecclesiology. We're called ecclesia because we are the gathered people. We're the gathered saints of God. And if we're trying to understand what the kingdom of God is, then we need to make the right connections. So if you were there, that's kind of my first intro. I would like to read that with you in your hearing, and then uh, I will pray, and then I will uh, start to hopefully break this down and, and show you what I believe God has been talking to me about um, for, a, for a while, and in particularly these last, last probably year, and even more so probably last month, about why I think this is relevant for where we are right now in time. Okay, so reading from the ESV version, um, Luke 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it, and you will say and they will say to you, look, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage unto the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But, no, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is in the house is on, who is on the housetop with his goods in the house, not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, We're Lord. He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are always thankful for the opportunity to gather again as your, as your people, as your chosen people, Lord, under your word, in worship and praise towards you, Lord. And for this reason, we, we can only give thanks, Lord, because we are not here merely by our own wills, but by the will of you who have given us your Son and the Holy Spirit, in which, Lord God, we can be obedient to you and serve you. 
even to, Lord God, the consummation of the kingdom of, the kingdom of God. And to that, Lord, we pray you preserve us, Lord, in our frailty, in our fallings, our failings, our insecurities, Lord, and all those things, Lord, that we are hampered by when we say, when we don't see ourselves as anything other than uh, the failed humanity, dear Lord God, that we see outside as well. But Lord, help us to realize that your, your church has a special place within, Lord God, this world. And Father, as salt and light, we pray that God, you will teach us how we can be that, Lord. And even more so, Lord, to encourage us to persevere as your called out people, Lord. Guide us through this text. Help me, Lord God, as I teach this text, Lord, to be faithful to what it means. And Lord God, to hopefully encourage, rebuke, exhort your people in their time. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let me, let me kind of make a couple of disclaimers before um, I do this. Um, so one of the things that I think that why this is relevant is the, the current political climate. Uh, you know, we, I think ever since probably last year's Brexit vote, there's been a lot of, a lot of movement about how government best serves its people and how we are trying to make the best life we can right now. And so there is, there is this tendency to move right now, as we can see across the world, to move from uh, uh, the status quo, the, things, the way things are currently going, the things that we've always seen them going, to something radically different. That tends to be the status quo right now. We don't just see that in the Islamic world, where people are moving to a more radical form of trying to put how can I say it? They are trying to remove a secularized version of government and trying to have a government that they believe is fully rep that fully represents the values of Islam. We see this in America with uh, people, uh, again, electing in, uh, again, an underdog like Trump. We see it today, most recently, where we've seen uh, that the UK are moving towards a socialist in Jeremy Corbyn. So there's this move, you know, and more obviously and recently with uh, a, a, a completely independent candidate in France uh, with Macron now becoming a French president. So there is this move towards um, something radically different. We want change and we believe that we can get the change that we need by moving away from the status quo. So my disclaimer really comes from the point, well, I have to be honest about how I feel when, I come, when it comes to the political world. And I tend to be a pessimist, if I'm honest about myself. And as a pessimist, I can tend to think that, you know, it's never going to work. And to some extent, I know it's true. I know America will not get the change that it really needs under Trump. I know to some extent Macron will fail the French people. And I believe that even in the Islamic world, as we see uh, Islamic State trapped in Mosul, their last stand, that ultimately even those people will not get the fully uh, theocracy, there we go, thank you, Harry, theocracy, which is the, the rule of God in their own countries. But... I'm not trying to make this statement as a pessimist, so please, hopefully, I'm not trying to read this. I'm trying to be faithful to the text. The other thing, I think I need to be... Uh, I, I also believe in the common grace. I believe that, um, that, to some extent, some changes will be made and they will be helpful, but then you'll always be, because of the, the nature of political parties and, and as, it's, as, it, as it stands, there will be some kind of imbalance somewhere, and all of a sudden, as you kind of redress one balance, everyone goes one way, only to kind of elect in the status quo, which is now the radical difference, to come back in to try and readdress those balances. So to some extent, I'm, I, I, I kind of see the common grace in the fact that we are always kind of ping-ponging between two, two extremes. I'm not, at the same time, trying to promote asceticism. Asceticism is 
the belief that we are to kind of withdraw from the world and withdraw from the pleasures of the world and, and, and kind of just let's kind of be a happy um, church, hippie commune and um, kind of refrain from that and, you know, actually let's try and put some money together and move to some remote location and set up, you know, that is not the church either. And I don't want to promote that idea. So I'm trying to give you two things which I say, if you're already a pessimist like me, please don't run away with that. Because common grace is supporting this nation still and the nations around the world. And I'm not saying that you should run away with what I'm saying today and go and say, well, let's try and find a way where we can all be together happily without the interference of the world. I do not want that either. And neither does God want that for his church. So having said that, I can continue. So why am I teaching this text? Well, this is really just a checkup for us. And this is what I thought was important. I mean, one of the things I saw, especially within the Brexit vote, and, and, I, and I, I kind of didn't comment at the time when somebody put it on their Facebook, when he showed the image of, of Daniel's, um, Daniel 2, where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of this statue and is like, says, in, and ultimately we believe that we're living in the time of, of the feet made of clay and partly of iron and basically this, this world is crumbling away. Why are we moaning that um, Brexit has happened? Because ultimately it just reveals what the text tells us. And we can just praise God and say, well, we are not leaving together. That's, that's what we found out. I think that there was something true about that that probably is best said now rather than a year ago. And that is, how are we dealing with the tension between the now and the not yet? How are we dealing with the fact that the kingdom of God is a reality and that this world will ultimately fade away? How are we dealing with that tension right now? Have we, to some extent, put that reality of the kingdom of God, because maybe life is going well, maybe life is busy, that we don't really actually put it in the forefront of our minds. And I think that is what I believe is important. I don't think it's a question of whether we serve one at the cost of the other. This is not a sermon about the either or of whether I choose to live for the kingdom of God right now or whether I, I choose to be a, a faithful citizen of my current government. I believe that God has teach, taught us specifically that we ought to do both. Most notably, he tells us to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay your taxes. Obey the laws. Abide within the, and even pray for the peace of the nation which you're under. But I also believe that the tension requires that we do live faithfully towards God right now. And maybe one of the things, of, if we are getting caught away in the political game, that maybe we would pause and see, how am I hoping that that change will come through people rather than through God? People who have constantly failed. So considering the current political environment and all the theatrics, both home and abroad, there is one particular event I find in partic to, to, of particular importance to note before I dive into kind of the text as well. And, and that was really the resignation of Tim Farron. Uh, I was not a Tim Farron fan, I have to be honest with you. I'm not a Democrat. Democrat um, found in any particular sense. But I found it was interesting in his resignation speech that he said, I cannot be a Christian and a party leader. I cannot be a Christian and the leader of my party. Well, some of us might think, well, that's just, a, that's just a, the liberal Democrats for you because, I mean, you know, they are obviously liberal. But I believe that could have been true for, for Conservatives or Labour 
or nearly any other party because of what they believe. If any of their leaders were put on the spot the way he was about that same question, then we would have to say, well, my Christian conviction may be this, but I know that ultimately the, the government tells me and the, and the way the status quo is and the law is that I must say this. For me, it highlighted the pervasiveness of secularization. The removal of God from having any authority over people. And Tim Farron's speech highlighted that for me. That we are so secularized that we have no space for Christian belief in our present country. And truth be told, through much of Europe, if not all, and, there, and nearly everywhere else we go. But I think Daniel 2 is helpful here, going back to this image that Nebuchadnezzar sees, and you know, Pastor Rob, I believe it is you taught on that, looking at that image in our Bible overview. And I take us back to that. I don't want to read the text, though I was tempted to do so. Um, but I want us to go back, and if you remember that, and if you have the time, maybe go back and refresh yourself on this, that we saw an image of gold, of silver, of bronze, and of steel, and then feet that were made of clay and of steel. And most believe though there are some outsiders who would, who would say that there are other aspects going, there are other teachings going on here, but they represent empires, and, and Daniel tells us that plainly, that, they are, that you are an empire, you are the gold head, there will be another empire over you, that they will be a silver empire, the Persians, there will be a, another empire after you, bronze, that being the Greeks, another one, made of steel, which will be what we believe to be the Roman Empire. And then that Roman Empire will fragment and become another empire, but a weaker version with clay and steel in different parts. So it's an image that helps us to understand the historical timeline of this world. And the historical timeline of this world basically says that we are going to have an empire that when we look at the quality of the metal, actually gets from weaker to stronger. Those empires will become stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. To the fact that it says that the steel empire would be terrifying. It will smash and break into pieces its enemies. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, you can say they did indeed smash and break their enemies into pieces. But I also want to note the diminishing value and the diminishing value of those particular metals. We are going from gold all the way down to steel to clay and steel. What does that mean for us today? I think, and this is me putting my hypothesis out there, hopefully to clarify some things in your mind, is that could this possibly be a diminishing value because of secularization? In other words, these governments get stronger and stronger and stronger, but yet go down in value and value because there is no place for the prophet and priest within the seat of government. No place for the prophet and priest within the seat of government. So why do I say that? Well, if you read Daniel, you will find that Nebuchadnezzar, though we may speculate on his salvation in many respects, he had a place for the man of God and for the people of God within his administration. And to some extent, he wanted to hear what they had to say about how he should govern his kingdom. 
I believe that by the time you get down to the Caesars, there is less and less and less of a place for the people of God to actually have a say in how people govern their lives. Hence, the diminishing value of government. And I believe that this is where we are today. Secularization doesn't leave us with a progressive government, but actually leaves us with a government that, in the eyes of God, is actually weak and fragile and ready to crumble. Let me go through the text and, and, and kind of connect these dots. And hopefully I will fly through these and then, as it were, the meat is in the application. So, 20. This section begins with a question. And strangely enough, we have to identify the source being the Pharisees that they are skeptical. We are always getting questions from the skeptic. Where is this kingdom of yours? You're a king, you're going around, you're telling me about this kingdom and that you're ruling and that, you know, that, you know, you're the son of David, whatever. Where is this kingdom of yours? I don't see it. I believe that Jesus answers them because we know that Jesus doesn't give much place to skeptics but rather challenges them but I believe he answers for the benefit of his disciples rather than for the Pharisees so he continues and he, and he gives these things in 21 he says that it doesn't come with observations so what does observations mean I mean there are three particular um, ways you can break this down observations could mean um, astrological signs you know what will be the lining up of the stars it could mean the observance of the law. How do I keep the law? Or, or is it about a, a certain things that people do and all of a sudden they get into enlightenment and then they can see the kingdom of God, whereas other people are walking around. I can't quite see it. Remember those pictures where you kind of had to go your eye? You know, you do enough and all of a sudden you can see it. Is it like that? No, none of those help because they don't help actually break this this section down in the way that I believe this final one does, which is that you will not see eschatological, eschatological events building up towards the end. And he's not talking about the future aspects of the kingdom where we believe there probably will be certain events that Christians will be aware of. But I believe that he's actually talking about it doesn't come with the events that you're talking about because the kingdom of God is already happening. In other words, you are missing out on it right now. So when he says to them, <coughs> some of your translations might say, the kingdom of God is within you. Well, I don't believe he is talking to a Pharisee and saying that the kingdom, of, you've already got it, it's, it's, it, you're, you're done. You, you, you just have to acknowledge the God within, you know. So that, watching the voice yesterday, you know, I, you know, I've got to believe, with, you know, believe in me, you know, all that kind of stuff. I always... I always cringe, you know, um, you know, the be the best me. Is, is that what he, so, so I just need to believe in me. <laughs> it's not that. The Greek basically alludes to the fact that it's, in, it's, it's around, it's right here. It's, you could lay your hands on it or lay your heart on it. It's around you. So Jesus is pointing to himself and to his disciples and saying, this is the kingdom. It's humble. But it's, it's already started. So there's no point trying to look for observable signs in which I can lay hand, hold on because it's not about that. 22. The next verse actually skips to the future. You will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Again, a Daniel term. What is this talking about? Well, I believe that now he is actually talking about the future coming. 
And now he has skipped and he's changed the beat. And he's no longer saying, but you disciples will desire to see the days of the Son of Man. Or the day of the Lord. And I believe this links to the final verse as well. But I'd, I'd like to probably elaborate on that once I get there. So the disciples are marked by the desire to see what is known as the parousia. Lord, when will you come and be with us? Parousia is a Greek word that basically means um, meaning presence, arrival, or official visit. So, Lord, we will desire to see God, or we desire to see Jesus in his official, his fully official way. So, if you remember, the disciples go up on a, on a mountain where he says that you will see the Son of Man coming in his glory, and then he shows them a vision of who he really is. And not just him in his humble form. And you, they see that and they will say, we want that. We want, when will that happen? We, would, we want to see that fully realized in the world that we live in right now. I want to live in that world. He says, that's what they are desiring. And I think that's important for, for us to note. Because I will challenge us as whether we desire that. Do we desire to see the day of the Son of Man? Or will it f spoil our fun? But this is not just the disciples at Jesus' time. I, let me take you, um, you don't have to turn there, Philip, Philippians 1, 22 to 23. This was the desire of, of Paul as well. If I, am in the, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, fruitful labor for me to continue living. Yet, which I, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Philippians is one of those books, when I, when I read that particular thing, I, I, I know there are times when I'm not there. And if we're honest, there are times when we are not there. I, it's better for me to be with Christ. So one of the things that seemed to earmark the disciples is, is a desire for, for Christ's reality to come sooner rather than later. Twenty-three. So this whole idea of people coming and saying, "Look here, where is the Lord, and what's happening?" and you know. We've, 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 we've found here, you know, oh, look, he's, I found this guy. He's really great. You know, what's his name? Oh, he's David Koresh. Oh, great. I want to go to one of his meetings, you know. We've, we're all familiar with these claims of false messiahship and whatnot. But rather than bring it into our own context, what is he dealing with here? Well, at this particular point in time, because everybody thought that Jesus Christ was going to come back a lot sooner than they thought, this gospel obviously is written a number of years after Jesus Christ has actually disappeared from the earth. And so there was this belief that basically the kingdom of God has already come. That Jesus actually come in a secret visit and is actually already living amongst us. And, and such ideas like that were continuing. And, and obviously, we, if you remember Thessalonians, Paul is dealing with a similar issue. He is dealing with this issue that, oh, basically, we've missed the, the, the day of the Lord. And Paul has to remind them the day of the Lord will come in such a way that you will, not, you will know whether there is come. And he is also telling them to be aware of these particular things. So hence, they're able to be on guard when these things come because they're reminded that Jesus warned them that these things will happen. So Paul also obviously is on his guard when he reminds the Thessalonians that Jesus hasn't come in some secret way. That his rule has somehow been filtered through us and that one day we'll take over the world. Um, I think one of the issues with some of the other uh, sect Christian, so-called Christian sects who believe similar things as well, that, 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 that God's power has been administrated through them and that they will rule in place of Christ. And 24, basically, as Paul deals with it in Thessalonians, he, so does 
the Lord here deal with it in the same way. He says that basically, like lightning lights up a, a cloud. And obviously, this is not just a visual aspect of what God is actually doing. He actually is saying that as the cloud, as, as, a, as lightning lights up, it also comes with thunder. We've, we've been, I know, I've been asleep and I've heard thunder come and all of a sudden it's like, wow, okay. It can wake you up. This is not saying that Jesus' coming will be like lightning because I know I've, slipped, I've slept through thunderstorms. But it will be the kind of visual display which everyone will pay attention to. And this is just a, a, a word picture to help us understand that basically we will see his coming. It will be unmistakable. Twenty-five now. Now Jesus goes back to the present. Before the second, before the second, the second glorified coming of Jesus, he must handle and deal with the issue of present sin. He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So coming back to the time now. But this won't happen because there's no point in me talking about my second coming when I haven't really dealt with the things in my first coming. So the second coming is the Lion of Judah. The first coming is the Lamb of God. I have to do the stuff that the Lamb has to do that the Lion will later on rectify. So there's no point in me just talking about this coming without me first telling you this has got to happen first. Jesus is a first things first type of person. I'm, dealing with, I'm telling you about this, but right now this is what's important. This is what's ahead of me in our present temporal situation. I have to suffer at the hands of sinful men if I'm going to deal with their sin because that kingdom will be empty. If he doesn't, if he doesn't deal with this, who is going to abide the day of the Lord? Who can say they have cherished his coming and, the, and are looking forward to seeing God judge them by his law? No one can abide without the work of the Lamb. The next section, 26 to 30, let's deal with these as a whole. In this, in this section, Jesus references the times of Noah and Lot as anogulous to the day of the Lord. In other words, these are prototypes of the day of the Lord. If you want to see how the day of the Lord will appear, especially for unbelievers, then let's look at Noah and Lot and what happened in their times. Basically, he's saying that life will go on as normal. People will be marrying and getting married and just chilling out, doing stuff, going on holiday, getting new jobs, moving home, whatever you want to do, fill it up. That's basically what it means. It just doesn't have, it's not just a reference to being married. It's just basically the normal course of life. Another generation comes and they do their thing and then they you know, get their job, they retire, their children now go on and then their children do the same thing and then they retire. Life goes on. But those who believed are prepared. It's two tears to that. They are prepared to meet the day of the Lord. So they know when the end is drawing nigh because they are already looking forward to the presence of God. Remember what I told you about the apostles, how they looked forward to God? Well, this is basically how all believers have lived. Lord, I want to be where you are. And this will hit home in our final verse today. I'm looking forward to the day when I can spend all my time in your kingdom, living life the way I know it ought to have been lived from the very first day of creation. Noah and Lot were already living in the new world order. 
even though the old world order was still there. But don't take my word for it. Let me reference Hebrews 11, 7 to 10, and just read that to you. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that, becomes, that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And, when, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents like Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him, with him on the, of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that, that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Do you understand my theme now of the tension of the now and the not yet? How well are you living in both? But let me carry on. Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16 also says these. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared for them a city. Remember Jesus' promises, I go to prepare a place for you. You know, we see to, around us all these new builds. Maybe if we're the kind of people that are thinking of moving and maybe getting ourselves on the property ladder, we might actually start to put in some of that early interest, isn't it? You know, because we know these places can go quick. But how do you feel about when I say to you, Jesus is preparing a place for those who love him to be with him? Are you putting your name down for that? Do you care to inquire? So those of who hope to establish their legacy by getting married and having businesses and having children and whatnot um, with no regard for the kingdom of God will, will ultimately come to be disappointed. This is a temporal world that will come to an end. Legacies that last can only be established in the eternal triune God. And what I mean by that is that if God is the only eternal one and in eternity flows from him and it's only that which we build in him that lasts. It's only that which we, we build in Christ that actually endures all the elements that will come, both natural and supernatural. The wicked do not anticipate an end to this world through the intervention of God. So they have no reason to anticipate it. In other words, they are doing only that which they know best to do, which is I establish a legacy by just doing that. Build my business as big and as powerful as possibly can that it can outlast its competition. Or I, I get married and have children. Or, you know, if you're like these kings, you know, I'll get married multiple times and have loads and loads of children. And, and then my progeny go on and go on and my name keeps on carrying on. This is the only way that people can make their legacies last. Because they know their time is short. Is that how we are building our own legacies? Or is that the only way we are building our legacies? Let's move on to 31 to 36. It's very easy to get caught up in the illustrations of this particular section and, you know, quite run, all, run into this, oh, it's rapture talk. You know, 
people in housetops, in fields, in beds at work, and, and assume that this is just all about the rapture and, you know, you know this, just about being prepared, or, or maybe just some major apocalyptic event, and just being prepared to go. But I think if we look at these illustrations and these scenarios of everyday life, I think we're going to miss the power of what 32 verses 32 and 33 actually have to say about this text. Those two verses are the interpretive lens for everything that Jesus is saying in this particular section. And what do they say? Remember Lot's wife. Again, I go back to my theme. How well are you building an attention? Are you the type of person who is going to look back and going to say, you know what, if it, if it comes down to the Lord coming or me dying, I'm going to be one of those people that feel like, you know, Lord, it's too soon. I'm not quite finished here. And 33, those who lose their lives will gain it. I mean, this is, if we look back to the previous section, this is basically just showing the inner workings of how Noah and Lot were able to accomplish what they did. They were already looking for the new kingdom. So leaving the old kingdom behind was like, It's like running from my little shack in the, you know, that has no running water, that has none of the amenities that I really, running to the mansion that's been prepared for me. Not saying that God is actually building us mansions in, that, in the physical way we're saying, but the illustration is that I'm moving to somewhere better. I'm moving to plush places, to pastures. What, what am I looking back for? This is what I've desired. This is it. This is the day where the Lord is saying, come, let's go. And we just sit and say, I'm ready. Lord, take me. Both Noah and Lot were prepared to leave the life they had built for themselves behind in exchange for a life they knew only God could bring. that no other government could ever, ever bring, no matter how good it looks, no matter how for the people they are, no matter how we are for big business, all the different slogans, a better America. All those things that we can add and, and, and all the slogans we have heard where people have promised us the, work, the earth and given us pretty much not even half of it, let alone a tenth of it. Only God can deliver on the government that I really need. But what does it mean to seek one's life? It, well, it's like trying to have your cake and eat it too. If you pair this up with, with Luke 9, 23 to 27, where exactly the same term is used, you know, those who choose you know, to, to try to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life will save it. I mean, basically it's saying that what does it mean to gain the whole world and lose your soul? That's, what, that's how that section concludes. How much do you gain to the point where, as I said about previously about building legacies, how much do you gain to the point where you realize that no matter how big you build, it will all burn? And if you've made no investment in my soul, and this is not about you're a bad person if you build a big company. Please don't hear me say that. This is not for the, you know, the CEOs of, of Apple and, 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 and Microsoft and you know, Glaxo Welcome and all to go, oh no, we, we, there is no hope for me because I've built a huge, a, 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 a huge monopoly. No. If that's all you've built, then there is no hope, obviously. But if you have taken the time and initiative to develop that which is important, then, praise God, there is hope for everybody. <laughs> I remember um, the actual queen herself actually making a, an allusion to that a number of years back. You know, that 
says that, referencing the rich young ruler, that, yeah, hardly, but doesn't necessarily mean never. And she kind of pointed out that and said, you know, I'm glad that the Lord said hardly rather than never do rich people enter into the kingdom of God. You know, I believe the queen knows what she's talking about. How we live our life is, to, is going to determine our ultimate goal. If, we are, if our aim is to live the best life I can right now, then you will miss the kingdom. If, however, your goal is to live for the, the kingdom of God, I believe the Lord promises that this world will also be thrown in for free. You get this one as well. Isn't that a great promise? I mean, one of the, um, one of the commentators I read, I, I like this, so I, I kind of noted it, you know, and it says, uh, um, referencing the other verse in, um, in Luke, which says the same thing. It says, unlike um, Luke 9, 24, the motive here is not specified, but both, these verse, both verses share the common assumption one should not be preoccupied by one's present life, i.e. possessions and circumstances, in making the decisive choice in the presence of eschatological reality. In other words, it's, it's, it, it, if we are preoccupied with that and we are not trying to build our foundation on the eschatological reality that this world is coming to an end and a new world will raise up in, 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 in that, and he calls that a reality, which I believe as Christians we all believe, then we ought to build on that and not just solely build on this life. And that was um, by David Poe. <coughs> 37. Here we come to the end point. Verse 37. This section begins with a question. This, this section began with a question about where is the kingdom? And it ends with where are those who are part of that kingdom? Where are they? Where will those souls be who have disappeared or gone off? And so this is obviously looking back to the previous section, which we just dealt with, which was these people have disappeared and they've gone off and they've gone to a different place. Where are they, his disciples say? Where do they go? And Jesus gives this illustration, which, you know, I have heard even um, the late Chuck Smith say, this is one of the most difficult verses in the Bible to translate. Could be. But I believe there's a lot of evidence to say that even though it's an illustration that, we, that might be lost on us because we don't necessarily say, well, but it's a reference to nature. So I think it's quite easy to understand in light of everything that what Jesus has just said. It says, where have they gone? And he uses the illustration. He says, what the, the word means eagles, but obviously in this sense means vultures. He says, where the corpse is, the vultures, the carrion birds will circle. It seems morbid to use that kind of illustration, but he is saying that we gather around that which we are naturally inclined to eat. What nourishes us? Look at the birds, they... Birds of a carrion circle around corpses. They have gone to where they want to be. Where are we circling around? Where do we desire to be? This is the icing on the cake, if we're going to understand this section. Where have they gone? Well, where do, you feel, where, where do people go? They go to where they want to be. 
Let me add a bit more weight to this. Um, John 6.27a says this. Do not, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. This is a section that goes into um, Jesus talking about eating my body and drinking my blood. And uh, this to the revulsion of many of his quote-unquote uh, 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 straggler disciples, they say, well, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to eat your body or drink your blood. That's terrible. This is, I, I didn't think it was that kind of a religion. I'm moving on. <clears throat> and, and, you know, quite rightly so, one might say, you know, if you guys are cannibals. But Jesus obviously didn't mean it in that particular sense. But he is actually giving us a, a strong example of he is the bread of life, isn't he, in this section. Those who feed on me never hunger again. And so as we kind of pair that with this idea of where the carrion birds are, we are saying that we are lingering around that which we find helpful and nourishing to us. Listen to what the, when the disciples um, are, 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 are challenged by Jesus and said, well, will you go now, seeing all these other people have gone because they don't want to eat my body and drink my blood. And this is what Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Even when they don't even understand how they're going to do what God, Jesus wants them to do, they are, they, are, they are trapped within the life that only he can give. He says, we don't understand, but where else will we go? Where? I get confused when people leave the faith because I'm going to go, where will you go? Where will you get nourished the way that you can get nourished here? I can't leave. There are things I don't understand. There are situations I go through which I can't comprehend. They are difficult for me to understand. God, how do you reconcile yourself to this? But I find myself like these disciples saying, where will I go? Where will I find a better meaning to what life is actually all about? Where will I run to? Where? That's why when people leave, I, I'm like, whoa, have they found something better than Jesus? I'm I mean, I try to be genuinely like, okay, what is it? Because I'm searching like you. If you've got a better idea as how all this fits together, then please tell me. Because I would like to think there is an easier way to live this life. I bought a card yesterday. Um, Paper Chase have a sale, by the way. Um, and it said this, you know, that um, even though the cost of living is so high, it is very popular still. <laughs> it's high, but people don't want to die. <laughs> uh, I, I thought that was helpful. I laughed. I bought it. So we serve him even though we can't comprehend every nuance of what he asks us to do and everything that's expected of us. And let me run to the conclusion. I mean, we feed off the Lord because at the end of the day, we know that he is the only one who can give us that which nourishes us. So in con conclusion, I think there are several applications here, but let me highlight three areas for our consideration. And, and I, I, I'd, I'd be, if there is, I guess there is community group this, this Thursday as well. These will pretty much be stuff that you can discuss amongst yourselves there because I've read it so I'll make life easy for myself. So application one, personal sanctification. How do I respond to a message like this, to a section of scripture like this, and, 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 and look at my own personal sanctification? I says, well, have you, how have you set your goals in life? And are any of them towards the eternal aspect of life? 
So how have you set your goals? You know, we all sit down and we say, you know, in you know, five years' time we want to do this, in a year's time I want to do that, and we set those goals out. How many of those goals that you set for your life are eternal ones? That's challenge one. I mean, many of the reasons why we set goals in relation to this one is that sometimes we're looking to make a name for ourselves. But I leave this section saying, does heaven know your name? They say in life, isn't it? It's not um, what you know, it's who you know. When we're thinking about the eternal aspect of life, does the person who really matters in that area know you? How does it affect us in evangelism? Hmm. As I said, we're in a secularized culture at the moment, and um, most people tolerate Christians because we believe it helps in some areas of morality still. You know, like, you know, being good neighbors and, you know, not killing one another and things like that. We don't, we don't go to sexuality because we've already seen that Christians have nothing to offer there, um, you know. But there are so many other areas in which we're helpful towards, man, you know, in, in making humankind a better place. But the problem with that is that Christian morality isn't centered in me towards you or you towards me. Christian morality is centered on how do we treat God? And then everything that flows out of how I treat God and who God is in my life flows into how I treat other people. In other words, I can never know who I really am until I am aligned with God before I can start saying I can relate to all of you better. In a secularized world, because there is no relationship with God... Utilitarianism basically comes into, into effect, where basically you're useful only in, in, in relation to what I need from you and what you need from me. You don't see me made in the image of God. You don't see me being valuable because of who I am in God and how he has made me to be valuable in his eyes. We only see the value that is intrinsic to ourselves. And no wonder in a secularized culture that people get away with murder, literally. Let me add my person. This is me now. Nobody in the UK went to prison in the, in the, in, in, in the, the recession of 2007, 2008. Nobody went to prison. The people lost their houses. And I tell you something, I doubt anybody from involved with the Grenfell will ever go to prison either. Because in a utilitary society, it doesn't matter, those lives are gone, let's just keep rolling. We need these people in there, we need the big businesses, we need these quote-unquote uh, elites to keep on rolling because we will damage our economy if we get rid of them and, and, we, and we will frighten people away. In a secularized culture, life has no real value. Trust me. And it will flow through the politics. And as soon as everything dies down, everything will be back to where it was before. Because there is no compulsion to say, these people were made in the image of God, let us find justice for them. No matter what the cost. So as we go out there, we are trying to tell people, I am not trying to make you into good people and good citizens. I am trying to make you into citizens of heaven. That is our aim. I can't talk to you merely about the things that you think are important to you and to society, as good as they might be. But I have to tell you and start from the point where, how are you treating God? Who is God to you? 
And then I can start talking about how we are to deal with the sexual issues, how we are going to deal with all those. When we agree on that, then we can start talking about all the other moral issues that flow from that. But in our evangelism, it starts from who is God to you? And I think, lastly, in ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. If the church is going to outlive the empires of the world, how ought we to value it? In Daniel 2.34, we see a stone, an allusion to Christ, uh, that becomes a chief cornerstone. And I believe this is validated in Daniel 7, which is a, a, there are mirror prophecies of the same event. And we see that this is a reference to the Son of Man. So the stone is just a stone that becomes a mountain in, in, in chapter 2, but in 7, there's more flesh on it, and he now says, it is the Son of Man coming who will take over the empires of the world. And we witness that in the taking over of the empires of the world, that this stone becomes a mountain and fills the earth. This mountain is the church of God. Not merely the local church, but the church of God. How do we value the church of God? Because I've just shown you in the text how important it is to understand how you identify with how you build the kingdom of God and how you stand. This is not about church attendance, trust me. I believe that everything flows out of if I believe that I'm part of that eternal kingdom, all those issues are sorted out how my priorities are. You know, we're, we're, we're begging for people to help and assist. I could just give that an application, but that will be sloppy. I'm just saying is that if the church has eternal value, if this is going to outlive every single empire that has ever existed, that even have existed for centuries and nobody thought there would ever be an end to them, then how ought we to treat the church of God? How ought we to relate to it? And let everything flow from that. Let me end with 1 Peter 2, 4-5. And it says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As in the days of Noah, and so it was in the days of Lot, this is the ark of God. This is where the angels are calling us to run. They run forth throughout the world saying, come to him. The church of God is the place of safety. And the church will grow into the mountain that will fill the earth with Christ as its king. Let's pray. Lord, what shall we say to these things? If you be for us, who can be against us, Lord? We know your church has endured many, Lord, of anvil, and it will endure a secularized culture, Lord. Because, Father, we do not serve man, but we serve the living God. And even as we saw the, the, the apostles in the, in, the, in, the, in the early history of the church being challenged not to preach the gospel because it offends the leadership of the world, we continue on because, Lord, we know that this is the only kingdom that will endure. The mountain of Zion will be moved so that the, 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 the Christ can come and reign in his place because he is the new temple, the temple that will sit upon the hill of Zion and be a light to all the world. And we are being called to be faithful in, this, in our own generation to show that this temple is Christ and that, Lord, we are, his, we are the stones being built up into him so that we can continue to be salt and light for the world. Father, let us thank you for the safety of the ark that, Lord, you've created for us in these last days. I pray that, Father, for those who have not been building, myself included, solid foundations, Father, towards our eternal goal, that, Lord, that you will turn our lives around, Lord, not just in a temporary sense, but that, God, we can resolve an issue in our heart right now and make a decision to start living for you in ways, Lord God, that will actually count 
and have lasting effect. And not merely, God, for conviction, Lord God, of our, 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 our consciences, but, Lord, because our Holy, the Holy Spirit has been speaking about these things into our hearts and, and has been wanting to birth them into, into a real hard, solid action, Lord. Help those to move who need to do so, Lord. Help us, Lord God, who are already building in that direction to, again, continue to build more steadily and firmly, Lord God, knowing that, Lord, you are with them. And that, Father, even in the difficult situations, the things we can't understand, that, Father, knowing that, Lord, you cling on to us. It's not because we cling on to you that you sustain us, Lord, and keep us faithful and true. Even when we have our genuine doubts. Lord, help us. Thank you for your son. And as we says in Proverbs 2, may we kiss the son and give thanks, Father, for the kingdom he has provided. Lord God, we know that he's done so at your will. And for that, Lord, we are being called back to you, the Father, and the creator of all. And that, Father, your Holy Spirit, who again is present with us, Lord, bringing life and helping the church to exist, even telling us what to say and how we should act. Lord, help us not quench, to quench the Spirit of God, even today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.